Welcome. Hello. Welcome to America's Got Talent. What's your name? I'm Cody. Hi, Cody. I'm Cody. How old are you? I am 22 years old. Yeah. Who are you, miss? Who are you? I'm Mom. Oh, I'm hi, Tina Mom. Lee. Hi, <laughs> Tina. How are you? So, what are you going to do here for us today? I'm going to sing a song for you on the piano. I love it. Tina, tell us a little bit about Cody. Cody is blind and autistic. Oh. Wow. We found out that he loved music really early on. He listened and his eyes just went huge. And he started singing. And that's when I just, I was in tears because that's when I realized, oh my gosh, he's an entertainer. So yeah. through music and performing, he was able to withstand living in this world because when you're autistic, it's really hard mm -hmm. to do what everybody else does. It actually has saved his life playing music. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. Well, we'd love to hear you. Go for it. You ready? I'm ready. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. Hopefully, you are ready for summer. Uh, for a lot of area schools, this last week was the last day of classes. And so for a lot of people, not for everybody, for a lot of people, new rhythms, new routines starting up this weekend and, and heading into next week. And so that's the same for us here at Hope. Uh, we're starting a new message series today based on the book of Samuel, which is actually two books, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. And as we make our way through this, we're going to discover this prophet of God, Samuel, is used for a pretty important purpose to help the nation of Israel transition into a monarchy, to help them become a nation who is led by a king. And so we're going to spend most of our time focusing in on the second king in the nation of Israel's history, King David. Uh, that clip we just watched is from earlier this week on America's Got Talent. A 22-year-old blind autistic contestant named Cody Lee ready to uh, audition on that show. At the end of the message, we'll get to watch and listen to his audition. I wanted to start with that clip as our introduction. I think it does a good job introducing what we're going to be talking about today. From the outside, Cody Lee does not look like a pop star. From the outside, I would guess a lot of people would not say Cody Lee has much of a chance at anything in his life. And there's something else about that happening in 1 Samuel. 1 uh, Samuel, God says to Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem, go to the home of a guy named Jesse, and anoint one of his sons to be the next king for the nation of Israel. We pick up the story in verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely... This is the Lord's anointed. One look, one glance, first impression, outward appearance, and Samuel, the prophet of God, is convinced this guy must be the one that God wants to anoint as the king. In his book, Blink, Malcolm Gladwell writes about something called thin slicing. Thin slicing is this unconscious ability every human being has where we are able to pick up on patterns of behavior or patterns in situations just based on a very thin slice of experience. 
And so Gladwell calls this our ability to think without thinking. Thin slicing is what makes it possible for us to make snap judgments about people, about situations, just based on our initial impression. And a lot of times this is really helpful in our lives. You can probably think of experiences in your life where you've been somewhere, you've been in a particular situation or with a particular group of people, and like warning buzzers started going off inside you. And your intuition is saying, this is not a good place for me to be. This is not safe. I need to get out of here. And so over the course of your life, you've learned to trust that gut instinct, that thin slicing impression uh, intuition uh, that we have. Thin slicing can be really helpful and trustworthy, but of course there are times when thin slicing is not trustworthy at all, like the summer of 1985. I call it the summer of love. It's when I met my wife, Wendy. We were getting ready to go into eighth grade, and I had a huge crush on Wendy, and she didn't really want to have anything to do with me for the next 10 years. In fact, what she said to her mother in 1985, why do all the dweebs like me? So clearly her read was way off. Her initial impression was way off. The third chapter of this book, Blink, it's called The Warren Harding Error, Why We Fall for Tall, Dark, and Handsome Men. And part of what they're talking about is sometimes our initial read of a person or a situation is way off base and it leads to less than stellar decisions. And so Warren Harding becomes uh, president of the United States, and most presidential historians say he's one of the worst presidents that America has ever had. When he was running for office, voters would take one look at this guy and just based on outward appearance would think he must be trustworthy, he must be uh, intelligent, he must be a man of integrity and character. And so a lot of people voted for Warren Harding because they thought he looked presidential. Something similar going on in the book of Samuel. The first king for the nation of Israel is a guy named Saul. All kinds of reasons why Saul gets anointed as the king. One of the reasons is outward appearance. Let's read this verse together. 1 Samuel 9, verse 2. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. He would have been on the cover of People magazine, right? World's sexiest man. Tall, dark, and handsome. He's going to make a great king. Not so much. But what's interesting is the prophet of God, just seven chapters later in chapter 16, is about to make the same mistake. He takes one look at Eliab, and he's convinced from outward appearance alone, this guy is the guy God wants for the next king. And so God has to teach his prophet a lesson. Here's part of what God says. Don't judge by his appearance or height. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looks at the heart, and that's what we want to spend the rest of our time together today talking about. How do we know what is going on in our hearts? How, how do, can we kind of learn to figure out what is the condition of our heart? And how can we become people who pay more attention to the condition of other people's hearts and less attention to their outward appearance? This is actually a very difficult thing for human beings to do. And so we're going to need the help of some real strong theologians, Seinfeld and Newman. Take a look. <laughs> Hello, Newman. Hello, Jerry. I was wondering if you knew where Kramer was. No, I don't. Why? You know, Genderson. This is something, isn't it? I suppose. 
What did Kramer say? I don't know, nothing. Come on, Jerry. You know something. Tell me! Tell me! Ooh, chunkies. <laughs> Margaret? Hello. You two know each other? You might say that. We used to go out. Toodaloo. <laughs> and nice seeing you again, Margaret. Bye, Jerry. Have fun. <laughs> you went out with Newman? Just a few times. Why? I liked him. You liked Newman. Look, I'm a little uncomfortable talking about this, okay? No, I'm sorry. I'm just a little curious. I mean, why did you stop seeing him? He ended it. Newman. She went out with Newman. No, it isn't. And the most distressing part about it is not that she went out with him, but that he stopped seeing her. Do you understand? He, Newman. Newman stopped seeing her. Newman never stopped seeing anybody. Newman will see whoever is willing to see him. So the question then is not so much why did she see him, as disturbing as that is, but why did he, Newman, stop seeing her? Perhaps there's more to Newman than meets the eye. No, there's less. It's possible. No, it isn't. I've looked into his eyes. He's pure evil. Perhaps there's more to Newman than meets the eye. No, there's less. And it's a, it's a funny bit on the show, but I wonder, who are the Newmans in your life? Who are the people you've just kind of written off because of that first impression, that initial impression, and you made a snap judgment, and you're like, yeah, I don't need to have anything to do with them. Perhaps there's more to the Newmans in your life than meets the eye. Perhaps your snap read, your thin slicing of them was off. Perhaps it would be good for you to spend a little bit of time examining the condition of their heart rather than focusing in on first impressions or outward appearance. Seinfeld would be unconvinced by a pastor telling him that. He says, no, I've looked into Newman's eyes. He is pure evil. And I actually think he's getting at something biblical. Uh, biblically, there's this connection between the condition of our heart and our eyes. And Jesus talks about it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, next slide, Jesus says, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. I've looked into his eyes. He's pure evil. Jesus says there are other people. You look into their eyes and you see a pure heart. Pure evil, pure heart. Let's talk about purity for a little bit. A man named John Ortberg, an author and a pastor, wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. And one of the things he talks about in the book is the role of the Food and Drug Administration in our country. One of their jobs is to make sure the food that we eat is pure, that it's free from contaminants. And so how does the FDA, what are the standards that they have so that uh, the food we eat is pure enough for our you know, bodies or temples, that sort of thing. So how about apple butter? If the mold count is 12% or more, 
if it averages four rodent hairs per 100 grams or more, if it averages five or more whole insects, not counting mites, aphids, or scale insects per 100 grams, the FDA will pull it from the shelves. Otherwise, it goes on your English muffin. <laughs> Any coffee lovers in the room? Caffeine addicts? Coffee beans will get withdrawn from the market if an average of 10% or more are insect infested. 8% insect infested, and you can guzzle it, but 10% or more, no way. I've never been a fan of mushrooms, maybe this is why. Mushrooms cannot be sold if there's an average of 20 or more maggots of any size per 15 grams. We don't care how small those maggots are, we don't want you eating more than 20. Ugh. Fig paste, because everybody eats fig paste. Anyway, if there are more than 13 insect heads per 100 grams of fig paste in each of two or more subsamples, the FDA ruthlessly tosses the whole batch. Uh, Orberg says apparently other insect body parts are tolerable, but we don't want to be staring at too many insect heads. Hot dogs, you don't even want to know. <laughs> the point is, the point is, things are best when they're in their purest form right? Things are best when they're in their purest form. It's true for oxygen. We want pure oxygen untainted by exhaust fumes or snow. Pure is the driven snow with no dirt or no gravel in it, that sort of thing. What about human beings? God wants us to be purely human, not contaminated by sin. God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to have a pure heart. The New Testament writers use the word pure a couple of dozen times, and whenever they use it, they're pointing to a couple important ideas. First of all, to say that biblically something is pure, it means it's free from impurity, so it's not contaminated, it's clean, there's no germs, there's no dirt, and the, the people of God would have all kinds of these purification rituals. Even in the Old Testament, in the story of David, they had to purify themselves before the sacrifice uh, that Samuel was going to make as they want to anoint the next king. So it has something to do with that. But then the second idea is to be pure biblically means to be the same through and through. The same through and through. It kind of gets to the idea of integrity, right? When you peel a banana, you want to see that there's a banana on the inside. It's the same through and through. Pure gold, no, no traces of other metal in it. It's all pure gold. When Seinfeld says Newman is pure evil, part of what he's saying is there's not a part of Newman that's untainted by evil. Pure hearts, pure hearts. Someone biblically with a pure heart is a heart that's free from impurity, a heart that's the same through and through, and sometimes the biblical writers, the word they use is undivided, an undivided heart. It's a heart that there's nothing in there that should not be in there. There's no foreign objects in the heart. It's all what it's supposed to be. Someone with an undivided heart, a pure heart, it means that my thoughts, my actions, my will, my uh, desires, they're not in conflict, but they are all in alignment with God's purpose for my life. Someone with an undivided heart, you, you wouldn't say, I've got this compartment over here for God and faith and you know, worship on the weekends, but then over here I've got another compartment for fun things, because you know, church can't be fun, and then I've got another compartment for relationships. No, someone with an undivided heart is just one compartment and God fills it all. Someone with an undivided heart lives one life, it flows from the inside out, and they live it for God. 
The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard puts it this way, purity of heart is to will one thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing. To have a pure heart, I want one thing, one thing only, one thing always, and what I want is God. So people with an undivided heart don't spend a whole lot of time wondering, is this God's money or my money? God's time or my time? God's will or my will? Am I doing this for God's glory or my glory? It just kind of naturally flows out of them. And when this kind of heart is beating inside a person, Jesus says, that person will see God. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. Now, I want to pause here for a second. Because I'm guessing this is the part in the message that most of us might check out. Like if this is the goal, if this is really where we're heading, pure hearts, undivided hearts, uh, count me out. I mean, when I hear somebody talk about this kind of a life, this kind of a heart, don't, the picture that comes in your mind, isn't it like a monk or a nun or someone like that? So count me out. It actually feels hopeless. Well, we're Lutheran Church of Hope. I don't want you feeling hopeless. Let me give you a little bit of hope. Go back to the story of Samuel. God's at work in Samuel's life, helping him to not judge people by outward appearance, but pay attention to what's going on in their heart. So what is going on in the heart of David that makes God say, I want you to anoint this guy to be the king? What super spiritual thing is filling David's life? How's he filling his time doing super spiritual things? The text says... He's out in the fields, watching the sheep and goats. Kind of seems ordinary, doesn't it? How, how is that this super spiritual purity of heart is to will one thing? This What is God seeing in the heart of David the shepherd boy? Next week, we're going to look at the story of David and Goliath. I want to look at just one verse from uh, that story, early on in that story. So the Philistines are the enemy led by their champion Goliath and they're fighting Saul's army and some of David's brothers are full-time soldiers in that army. Well, here's what the Bible says David is up to. David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. Sometimes he goes to the battlefield and he brings gifts to his brothers to help them. He brings food to them to help them. Sometimes he's at home, he's in Bethlehem helping his father there with the flocks. But what you see is his heart is focused on helping others. David's heart is focused on helping others. We'll get to a part of the story where it's pretty clear his heart is focused on helping himself. But at this part in the story, his heart is focused on helping others. And that's an indicator that his heart is good. Uh, his heart is pure. It's focused on helping others. It's an undivided heart. Uh, David Letterman retired from hosting his late-night talk show in 2015, but last year he teamed with Netflix on a, a new series called My Next Guest Needs No Introduction. I think the second season was just released maybe on, on Friday. And I just like, he sits down with one person and has a conversation with them for 45 minutes, for an hour. And I just found the conversations fascinating, particularly the one he has with Jerry Seinfeld. So I want you to watch these two guys talking about life. But remember the context that we're talking about today. What does it look like to have a pure heart, an undivided heart, a heart that is focused on helping others? Here's how Seinfeld and Letterman talk about it. Take a look. You weren't really fired from CBS, were you? Is that, your, is that just your joke? That's the joke line. Did, it, did he get a laugh? <laughs> <laughs> it did get a laugh. Eh, not much of one. <laughs> 
Were you really ready at that time to go? I'll tell you something. I, I wish now, looking back at my life, I should have left 10 years ago because then I could have taken some of that energy and focus and applied it to actually doing something good for humans. Do you know what I mean? No, I don't, because <laughs> I think you could not have done more for humans than what you did. You think, you think of your career as a self-aggrandizing, yes. self-satisfying, yes. yes. self-enriching, uh, uh, self-enriching, thank you, uh, pursuit. And if you're any good at it, Mr. Letterman, mm. you're not that kind of person. If you're really thinking like that, you're going to suck. And you know that that's true. The people that are good at it do it because they know it's making people happy and that's what's driving them. And that's why you were so great, as you know. The, the other thing about television is the physical uh, um, challenge of it. Uh, it's very physically demanding right. work. I, I don't even understand how you did that show. I mean, because well, I did I my show. I, I, should have, I should have left 10 years earlier. What does what that accomplish? Well, look at me. I'm a broken man. <laughs> The time goes by at the same rate. It doesn't matter. <laughs> now, would, it, do, you, do you have a, a, a point in your life where you think you would like to not be in show business at all? The, the thing about doing something for others is, is uh, a version of being in show business because ultimately it just makes you feel good about yourself. And being in show business and being able to get an enormous audience or to be able to get a small audience to applaud and laugh is so gratifying. It's mm -hmm. endlessly gratifying. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with do, do, doing something more tangible for somebody. The, the feeling you get from doing that is, is the same. So it's, it's, it's a selfish pursuit either way. I, I couldn't disagree more. I think it's a generous pursuit. Both of those things are generous. When you're giving something to people that makes them happy, this is, the, this is what the best thing we can do in life. Mm -hmm. If you find yourself with something, that's good, and you try, and you go through the hell, let's be honest. Yeah, it is You hell. go through the hell right. of trying to turn your sense of humor into a show or a career. It's sure it's great for you, but you're, you're missing the point if you don't see the good that you've done. Well, I, I, I never quite looked at it like that, so thank you. I love that. Letterman's in this reflective place in his life, and it's almost like he's lamenting, he's convinced He's wasted his life, uh, selfish pursuits. And Seinfeld's trying to help him look at it from a little different angle, a little different perspective. Not selfish, it's a generous pursuit. If you were only doing it from a selfish motive, you would not have been good at it. So yes, it benefits you in some way, but that's how life is supposed to work. God's given you gifts, God's given you skills, abilities, and talents, and dreams what does it look like for you and for me, regardless of what we are doing, to use everything that God has given us in this generous pursuit, in a way of helping others, serving others, loving others, bringing joy to this world? I think it's so easy for us to gather together for worship and like, we're going to talk about today all the ways in which we are messing up and all the ways in which we're failing. It's easy to do because we fail a lot. None of us is perfect. David is not perfect. But we're also missing the point if we are unable to see the good that gets accomplished along the way. 
There's this connection between what we're looking at, what we're viewing, what we're focused in on, and the condition of our hearts. Jesus talks about it at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He talks about it in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body, Jesus says. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. It's interesting to me, God is trying to make this point in the anointing of David. You know, people look at outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What's interesting is, as you read through the book of Samuel, the writer is often giving these descriptions of people's outward or physical appearance. Tall, dark, and handsome. Tall, dark, and handsome. Tall, dark, and handsome. The writer does this with David as well. When they finally call him in from tending the flocks, the writer says he is dark and handsome. But then there's one more detail about David's uh, physical traits that the biblical writer wants us to know. He writes, David had beautiful eyes. David has beautiful eyes. His eyes are good. And therefore, his whole body is filled with light. He has a pure heart. He is able to see God. What's the connection for you these days? What, what are you looking at? What are you spending your time looking at? What are your eyes seeing? Is it good or is it dark? Does it fill your body with light or does it fill your body with darkness? Our theme this year at Hope, 12 books in 12 months, and one of the reasons we're wanting to focus in on the Word of God is we absolutely believe the Word of God can help give us a pure heart, and the Word of God can help us see God. This happens in all sorts of ways. Paul uh, does a really good job describing how this happens in his uh, letter to the Ephesians. He's telling husbands, here's how I want you to uh, treat your wives. I want you to love your wives the way Jesus loves the church. And he gives this description of the way Jesus loves the church in Ephesians 5, verses 25 and 26. Again, it's on the screen. Let's read this out loud together. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. Biblically speaking, something that is pure is clean. It's free from impurity. And so part of what Paul is saying here is as we engage with God's work, word, it does this work, this process of cleansing our hearts, giving us a pure heart, helping us see God. So what if you made that a goal for your summer? I'm going to engage with Scripture. I'm going to engage with God's Word more this summer than I have been over the last several months. Maybe it means every day, but maybe it's just more often than you've been doing it. Did you know that you can go to our website, you can click on the Grow tab, and it'll open up a little box with a link to daily Bible readings. And for every week, this month we're going through uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, for every week there'll be readings that give you the greater context of whatever it is we're going to be focusing in on uh, that weekend at worship. And the readings are a couple of chapters long, not super long, it's very doable, but this is just to try to help you get to develop this pattern of getting into God's Word. If you made this a goal, not so that it can be some outward show, not so that you can say, hey everybody, look how much I'm reading the Bible, look how spiritual I am, but if you made it your goal so that you would believe God would be at work giving you a pure heart and helping you see God, that'd be a pretty good thing to accomplish this summer. And so if you do that, some uh, things to think about as you get started engaging God's Word. Number one, begin with prayer. It's so easy to get distracted in our world. When we sit down to actually engage with God's Word, it's good to just recenter ourselves, refocus our hearts and our minds. We believe the Word of God is living and active. 
And so the prayer, there's nothing magical about it. It's just saying, Lord, help your words come to life for me. Help your words give life to me. Secondly, read with a repentant spirit. Uh, Seems to me one of the real problems in our world, nobody wants to hear from somebody who thinks differently than they think. I want to just read the Bible so that I can use the Bible to back up what I already believe. If that's your attitude, if that's the spirit with which you approach God's Word, uh, you're not going to allow God's Word to do this work of cleansing you, changing you, helping you grow, transform you. So when I say read with a repentant spirit, maybe another way to talk about it, read with a spirit of humility. To be humble simply means to be teachable. Are you teachable or not? Jesus says, follow me, be my disciple. A disciple is literally a student. So if you engage God's word as a student who has something to learn, as a student who is not the master, who doesn't have it all figured out, who knows they need to change, they need to grow, that's the way this word of God is going to do its cleansing, purifying work in your life. Third, take small bites. Sometimes when we open up the Bible, it just seems overwhelming, right? It's so long, there's so many words, so many characters, so many stories. How can I ever make sense of all of this? Just remember, you don't have to have it all figured out by the end of the day. Our Bible readings are two chapters long. That might even be too long. Take smaller bites. The the point isn't to get through the reading. The point is to let God's Word get through you. So pay attention as you read. How is God speaking to you? It might be one word. One phrase, one idea that just resonates with your spirit. And when that happens, just stay there. Stick with it. Carry that one thought with you throughout the day. Purity of heart is to will one thing. What's the one thing God is speaking to you this day as you read through this passage? And when the biblical writers encourage us to read scripture, sometimes they'll use this language, meditate. Meditate on God's word. Meditation does not happen in a hurry. You cannot sign up for a class through Ankeny Community Ed, like speed meditating. (laughs) Nobody walks around bragging, hey, I'm up to 90 words a minute, you know, meditating. No, it's not how it works. It's not hurry up and know that I'm God. It's be still and know that I am God. And I think sometimes we do people a disservice. People like me, you need to read the Bible. You need to read the Bible. It would be so great. Most of the time when you read the Bible, it's not great. It's hard. And you don't get a whole lot out of it. But I'm convinced there's a cumulative effect that slowly, over time, as God's Word works its way into you, as you develop a regular pattern of engaging with God's Word, this work happens where your heart is purified, you start to see God on a more regular basis, and you start to view others not for who they are on the outside, but who they are on the inside. Which gets us back to America's Got Talent in this blind, autistic, 22-year-old named Cody Lee. Here's his audition for the judges. I've been so many places in my life and time some bad rhymes I've acted in my life in stages 10,000 people watching yeah 
Everybody needs a voice and an expression. And I really feel your, your heart, your passion, your voice blew all of us away. So I just want to say that I heard you, and I felt you, and that was beautiful. Thank you. Simon? Listen, what just happened there was extraordinary. I mean, really extraordinary. Uh, I don't know what it's like to live in Cody's world. All I can tell is, is that you obviously have an amazing relationship, the two of you. And your voice is absolutely fantastic. You have a really beautiful tone. And thank you so much for trusting us on this show. I'm going to remember this moment for the rest of my life. Thank you. I'm a new judge this season, and I'm also a new mom this year. And congratulations. It's the toughest job I've ever had and the most rewarding job I've ever had. You just want to give your kids the moon, the stars, and the rainbows. And tonight, I'm going to give you something special. Climb every mountain swim every ocean. Just to be with you And fix what I broke So where does God speak to you as you watch that clip? What, what part of that resonates with your spirit? Uh, a couple of things for me. That first judge, she said, I hear you and I feel you. She's talking about his heart, not outward appearance. She's connecting with his heart. And then Simon said, I don't know what it's like to live in Cody's world. It's a good word, isn't it? We don't know what it's like to live in anybody else's world. But I wonder if maybe I know something about what it's like to live in your world. Maybe you're like me. If the idea of standing in front of a judge and being critiqued does not sound fun. And put it in the context of faith standing in front of a God who is pure and holy. 
Does that sound scary to you? God wants to know what it's like in our world, and so God comes to our world in the person of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And he gives us a golden buzzer. I don't watch the show. I don't know exactly how the golden buzzer works, but I think every judge gets one, and it sends them all the way through to Hollywood. And so, boom, just like that. What if you could believe Jesus is God's way of giving a golden buzzer to you? Not because of anything that you do or deserve, but because of God's great love for you. God wants to be with you in a relationship with you, out of love for you. We remember that love when we come to the Lord's table. We remember it was the night he was betrayed. Jesus took some bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to his disciples. He said, take and eat. It's my body given for you. Eat this and remember me when you eat it. Later in the meal, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Poured out for you and for all people for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this and remember me when you drink it. Uh, let's stand and let's pray together the prayer Jesus taught his followers to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.